Welcome to episode 248 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Our guest this week is Brof Turner, who's the founder of NetBlazer. Brof, welcome to the show. Thank you. So today we're going to chat about uh, very uh, currently political and topical conversation of net neutrality, uh, the digital divide, and fast, cheap internet for all, which is why Broth is with us here today. So for those of us uh, who might not have a complete understanding of the topic, uh, Broth, what, what is net neutrality and, and why is it so important? Okay, well, basically... Uh, in the U.S., we have a monopoly in most places, to some extent a duopoly, but very restricted number of providers who are giving you access to the Internet. Uh, most people will have a cell phone with some kind of Internet connectivity uh, and some kind of fixed Internet in their home. There's only one viable competitor for the fixed Internet, and that's Comcast. Uh, there are a few providers. Uh, so... As soon as you have monopoly or a very limited number of providers, there's a risk that the people who have the, the power will do more than just deliver the service. They'll control what you get over the service or they'll differentially price things. And we've seen this with uh, Comcast basically trying to hold up Netflix for extra payments. So even though uh, I get internet from Comcast, and I'm paying Comcast for access to the entire internet, Comcast is going to Netflix and saying, we won't let you get to any of our users unless you pay us extra money. So there's certain content that Comcast is restricting in some sense for me. Uh, that's a violation of what people refer to as net neutrality. Now, there's all sorts of other confusing things that get in there. People uh, take the term and stretch it to uh, to, to other domains. But the root problem, the original uh, source of the term, is we've got a monopoly or close to a monopoly controlling our access to the internet, and we don't want that company. I mean, I, personally, I hate the idea we have a monopoly, but given we have a monopoly who dominates uh, our access to the internet, we don't want the people who control the our access to be able to decide what we're listening to, or what we're connecting to, what we're doing with it. So I'm, I'm an anti-capitalist, so far be it for me to stand up for big corporate interests, certainly. However, Netflix is a service that sucks a lot of bandwidth, right? The, the serving of videos compared to, say, reading text on the Internet, there's a massive difference in the amount of data that's moving through those two experiences. So from a, from a logic, common sense perspective, is there some argument to be made that if the user is using high bandwidth services that there should be something that the comcast should be getting more money from you or more money from netflix or more i don't know right i'm just well yeah if you if you're looking at something where again access to the internet uh if i'm paying for access to the internet and comcast wants to say well uh if you want to use more than uh, than a terabyte a month i'm going to charge you something extra or if you want to use uh, bandwidth in the early evening when my peaks are, I'll charge you extra. 
that's a reasonable thing. I, you know, if Comcast now, <laughs> oh, separate thing, they've got a monopoly. So what the hell price are they picking and is it real and so forth? Yeah. But if there were competition and remember, if you, if you do in the 1990s, between 1994 and 2000, the primary technology for delivering the internet was dial up. And during that era, the dial-up, the, the base-level connectivity, that is the phone system, was open to everybody. It was a regulated monopoly, and the Internet ran on top. Yes. In 1994, there were a dozen ISPs in, in the world. In 2000, there were 10,000 ISPs in the United States. Mm -hmm. It just burgeoned because the underlying transport yeah. was available. And in that market... If, if, you know, if my ISP didn't like delivering uh, whatever, you know, we didn't have Netflix then, but didn't like delivering some kind of content or some amount of traffic of, uh, you know, they could restrict me and I'd go to somebody else so yeah. I could get that. So in a competitive market, you don't have any of these problems. Uh, in this market, we've got a monopolist or a couple of oligopolists, if you will, yeah. who basically get to decide. And uh, that's. I have a I have a problem with that. <laughs> Why did that competitive market disappear? Why were there tens of thousands yeah. and now there's three or whatever the Well, the the issue is there is a natural monopoly uh in terms of getting physical infrastructure to my house or to my business. There's yeah. only one right of way in front of my house. And in most of the world, there's only one right of way. Some weird people have two rights of way into different sizes of, of their condo complex or something. But basically, there's one path. Yeah. So, so it does make sense that there's a natural monopoly on access. The problem is, uh, you know, rationally, if if uh, if the world were the way I would like it, that would be a dark fiber, which has a twenty to fifty year lifetime put in as part of a public utility and then I, or, or as a condominium, you know, if I'm living in a community, I pay for the fiber back to some aggregation point like mm -hmm. a telephone central office. Mm -hmm. And then I get to choose who lights it because the moment you connect technology to the end of the fiber, you and I know that electronics is, you know, three years later, it's functionally obsolete. And then six years later, it's completely obsolete because there's something better. Right. So the time scale for the natural monopoly fits very well with dark fiber. But the moment you light it up, uh, then you can argue about is that a monop natural monopoly or is that an artificial one created by a government yeah. that's been captured by a corporation. Yeah, yeah. And when you do what Comcast has done, which is to vertically integrate everything, all the services, not just Ethernet, but IP, but whatever, and they'd like, and television, and they'd like to control Netflix, <laughs> they're using the physical access, which is a natural monopoly, to create an artificial, a, a, a government, you know, basically they have a franchise from the local town, or from the state, uh, just like the phone company has a franchise from the, the state. They've got a government-provided monopoly, and now they want to integrate everything above it, vertically integrate, so that they can control everything and maximize their revenue. And you and I might loathe Comcast, but that's what, in a capitalist society, that's what they are incentivized to do, is to try and create those monopolies and just sure. and, acquire, and, expand, yeah, destroy, right? right. right? That's the, the, and the real issue is... 
And this, of course, is this is the trade-off. <laughs> you want to regulate something because it's completely unfair. Uh, on the other hand, historically, the regulator gets captured by the people who are regulated. Regulatory capture is like a standard economics term, and you end up with, uh, you know, certainly the phone company uh, is is in bed with the state regulators and everybody else, and has been since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And about every Every 30 years, there's a big congressional investigation and a new something or other, and it gets resorted. But, you know, the last resorting anybody had here in the U.S. was the Telecom Act of 1996. And the interesting thing was, even though the Internet was bursting out during the 90s, the word in in this multi-thousand page congressional bill that passed, the word Internet only appears three times. Yeah, it's just not, you know, it was too early. And, you know, so there is no regulation, excuse me, there's no Hmm. legal basis. Interesting. Uh, Instead, it's regulation added after the fact by people who have enabling legislation, primarily the FCC, based on their enabling act from 1934, (laughs) slightly modified in the 60s and slightly modified in 1996, but basically the... You know, the the network neutrality stuff that everybody's talking about, they refer to Title II of the FCC enabling the Communications Act of 1934. They were worried about a telegraph back then, right? Uh, No, telephone. They were worried about telephone in 19... And (laughs) so there we are. We are are arguing about something that was designed for analog telephones in 1934. Wow. Wow. And uh, that regu- that legal structure and all the court decisions that have happened over decades, that, that's what we have to fight about. Wow. So, so what is the sort of the current law regarding or the current regulation regarding uh, uh, net neutrality? Because there's, there's been a bit of a shift yeah. uh, uh, just recently. Yeah. So uh, from, 19, from the, mid, the mid-90s up through 2015 – we got various attempts when, when there were particular egregious things that happened. The FCC, as the principal body who has some legal authority in this area, um, came up with uh, things. They were guidelines. They were they were uh, legal re- regulatory requirements under different interpretations of the 1934 law. Uh, you know, there was a. Uh, Madison, something or other, uh, deal back in the '90s where uh, somebody was preventing VoIP over the infrastructure, because you know, and so forth. The, each of these resulted in the FCC intervening more and more. But the uh, the preeminent thing of the early 2010s uh, was something where the FCC was using part of the 1934 Act. It was referred to as ancillary authority. <laughs> to enforce uh, a set of rules, which we would call net neutrality. And uh, Verizon and and others challenged this in court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, well, reading the statute from 1934, it yeah. really doesn't work. If you want to do this, You need your, the only way that you're legally permitted to do this is under your Title II authority. You would have to decide that Internet services are a Title II service, at which point you could impose these kinds of regulations. Now, 
I find that really gross because the Title II regulations are extremely onerous. And, you know, that, that's like the other way in terms of really screwing the world up. But given there's no new law and you have to apply, so uh, under the very dying days of the Obama administration, the FCC declared that internet access was a Title II service and they imposed a set of rules which were going to go into effect uh, early in the Trump administration. And with the flip of whatever, Chairman Pai, who is who was a commissioner in the old, under the older setup and is now the chairman, the FCC has five member commissioners and votes are typically three to two and who's in charge depends on the administration at the moment and it's typically always three to two. It went from three Democrats and two Republicans to three Republicans and two Democrats. And uh, so the FCC determined that uh, the Title II thing was wrong and they flipped it all back. (sighs) Really, if you read the rationale that uh, was done in 2015 and 2016 to rationalize making the service part of Title II. It's plausible. I don't like Title II, but at least it's it's the only way open, short of congressional a new law. That, hmm. So if there's no if there's no way to really fix it correctly, this was the way to do it. Uh, the FCC's justification under the Commissioner Pai for unrolling this uh, is, is just technically flawed. Their arguments are, are really questionable. How but again, technically this, flawed? Why are the arguments questionable? Make it more concrete for us. Um, okay, there's a really thorough answer to that if somebody's really interested, uh, which appears in the EFS, that is the Electronic Freedom Foundation's uh, filing with the FCC on why the rules shouldn't be repealed. It's like uh, 60 or 70 pages. Uh, you go through the table of contents, you can skim and probably only read 20 pages. There, there are dozens of reasons and, you know, is a techie buried in whatever, but if there's any techies listening who want to look at it, I strongly suggest that you go to the Electronic Freedom Foundation website and uh, search for their filing uh, on the FCC to the FCC on net neutrality. Uh, it's, in, it's got a title on the order of um, uh, internet uh, engineers um, input on net mm-hmm. neutrality. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's a excellent document and it, it digs into the techie detail and okay. in any level that somebody would want, would want to go to. And it has tons of history about each of the egregious things that have happened in stages from the mid nineties through 2014 or so. And for the people who don't think it's egregious, how would they respond? What, what would their argument be? What would they be saying? Well, the FCC's got all sorts of justifications in their document about why they decided that it's not Title II. Uh, the EFF thing refutes those one by one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it really comes down to uh, we're talking about how do you warp something that nobody in 1934 could even have thought of to fit this law that was passed in 1934 that's only been minutely revised a few times since then. And so we are talking about baloney, I mean. <laughs> so it's, it's obtuseness that's similar to strict um, constitutionalists, basically. Yeah, yeah. One way or another, you you either side has to somewhat warp things because we're talking about something that was 
just yeah. totally not part of. Yeah. So, you know, now you could say rationally, the real thing you should do is have some regulatory. Excuse me, have have a law that made sense. But uh, frankly, I'm fearful of that because I view Congress as, personally as being 100 percent. Uh, a, a political process that's that's owned by you know it's a question of who has the most money to fight one side or the other. Um, I'm really cynical, <laughs> well, <it's laughs> so you don't want to get me started on power struggle, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's a struggle for power yeah, yeah, and so. and you know sometimes I feel really despair, and the only time I feel optimistic is when I look at history of of Congress in in the 19th century or whenever. It's always been this bad, so exactly. <laughs> It's <laughs> endemic to hum humanity. Yeah, yeah, Civilization right. Civilization so, at this point, you know, we haven't so, so, you know, in the end, the thing that I would like to see is, well, the th as an engineer, the thing that makes sense is that you would have uh, regulated utility in the things that are a natural monopoly, or you would live in a condominium community, or or maybe a community like Arlington. But you'd get a uh, a single set of individual fibers from every dwelling or every business, every building, to a central aggregation point, and those fibers would be owned by the town or by a regulated utility, or in a condominium fashion by the owners of the buildings. <laughs> in any event, as dark fiber, and if it comes to an aggregation point where there's a where there's thousands of such fibers then you can bet that competing carriers will come to that location to compete to light up these fibers. And that's a model which makes a lot of sense. That's a model which actually exists in Stockholm and a few places, very few places around the world. And it works incredibly well because you get hundreds of ISPs competing to light up these dark fibers and you get the vibrant market we had in the 1990s, in the US in the 1990s back again. But, uh, yeah, and so you're a founder of a company called Netblazer. So you have a a, a professional role in this whole ecosystem. Yes. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So, so I was uh, I've been pissed about this subject since at least 2002 or 2001. Yeah, uh, since the early 2000s, and I in the late 2000s I was speaking and and writing on the subject, and I did some comparisons of of the cost of a 100 megabit symmetric internet service in these major cities around the world, the fifth of which was New York City where it wasn't available. <laughs> and you looked and it, it, it turned out that if, the, if there was fiber infrastructure of any, anywhere that was open at layer zero at dark fiber, you got vibrant computation. As, as the, the open access got higher up, you got less and less competition and higher prices, and you reached New York, where the open access was at layer three uh, above IP, where there wasn't such a service at all in in two thousand and eight. Um, wow! So, so when I was uh, effectively uh, at loose ends, that is, the company I had founded in the nineties uh, was split up and sold off in pieces in two thousand and eight, and I was doing some consulting in two thousand and nine and trying to figure out what was I going to do. Yeah. Uh, and I was, you know, part of my background was also in uh, RF. I had done a whole bunch with 3G wireless in the early 2000s. Uh, so I got to thinking about uh, 
could I do a wireless end run around the monopolists? And the answer is, uh, in rural areas, there were tons of people already doing it. A couple thousand at that point, and, hmm. and probably three or four thousand now. Um, out of necessity, out, I would guess. Yeah, out of necessity, because yeah. there wasn't. It was a zero choice yeah. <laughs> if you lived on a farm. Uh, but as I looked at that stuff, and uh, I came up with a couple of different business plans for possible businesses, um, two of which, one was to try and become an internet service provider. That's the one that worked, NetBlazer. The other of which involved a complicated radio that I thought would allow me to, to get a consumer-installed window-based device. Um, and I have to say that I've used up almost a million dollars in National Science Foundation grant money on that. And I don't, that's, that business has not turned into a viable business yet. Well, some of those are but, Republican pissed about that allocation of money. I gotta tell you. Yeah. 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 And I, I will say, um, I probably won't do another National Science Foundation, whatever, just because. Uh, if if you can't raise real money from from seed money investors or put your own money in, it probably doesn't make sense. And I yeah. shouldn't I shouldn't have done that. It was it was probably five years too early. Let the market help you work your ideas. So anyway, yeah. so uh, but the ISP piece, um, you know, I didn't know enough. You know, people said, oh, you can't do this, and there's there's too much. You know, it was five gigahertz uh, uh, unlicensed spectrum. And uh, there's no way you could possibly do this in a city. It's just too much interference and so forth. But with directional antennas, uh, you can overcome an enormous amount of interference just by concentrating where you're transmitting and concentrating where your receiver is listening. Hmm. Um, so I thought there was a good chance of that, and I worked out a bunch of things. And we started out, and I have to say we started in May of 2010, uh, and we tried a lot of different business models, including... Uh, um, trying to get businesses to participate in cooperative things and trying to get, you know, a lot of uh, um, things, the sort of hippie view of the, the world that didn't work. In yeah. the end, people basically want a solution and they don't want to have to be involved in it. That's right. yeah. <laughs> so we became a more conventional uh, ISP, except we're using wireless. And what we found is uh, you can reach almost anywhere with so-so service, and you can reach clusters of people, for example, apartment buildings, condos, and any mm -hmm. place where there's a little bit of density, yeah. you can afford to bring in really high-capacity multi-gigabit links and provide everybody. We started with 300 slash 300 megabit per second service. We've upped that to 500 slash 500, and in the next... 12 months I've committed to the rest of the people that will have one gig symmetric uh, services in uh, in at least some of our buildings and be working on upgrades. For context, how does that compare to a Comcast, a garden variety Comcast yeah. service? Uh, so Comcast is providing a bunch of different speeds for downloads. Um, What's typical? Just a... Because the numbers you're using, I'm sure, are meaningless. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Uh, you, you can get uh, 25, 50, 100, a couple of hundred megabits down. The thing with Comcast is using their uh, cable TV infrastructure, uh, they have a lot of capacity going towards you, very limited return uh, channel. Uh -huh. uh, so they have recently announced 
and I saw a demo. This is not actually available yet. They've announced that they're going to have gigabit internet connectivity. And I saw, I, I know the CTO of Comcast is a friend, <laughs> even though we're <laughs> yeah. better enemies in some sense. I, I, <laughs> I love but, you, but I don't think he's scared of you. I got to tell you. I, I don't yeah. think, I don't think he's scared of yeah. me. Absolutely. And he was happy to show me the whole thing. Yeah. I was in a, down, down on the, down in Falmouth in, in September and he had just done a demo thing and he had in a Woods Hole affiliated thing and he had a gigabit down and 30 megabits up. And uh, it was the only one connected there, so there was no other competition, so it did work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was no, yeah. Uh, practically speaking, with their infrastructure, they do have the capacity to deliver down speed, the down, downstream capacities that they're promising. They have a very limited capacity to deliver upstream mm -hmm. uh, bandwidth. Without completely replacing. Without, yeah, without yeah. Uh, replacing everything, yeah. <laughs> which would be, which they'll get to someday. They they'll have gradually, to. Yeah. But uh, they, they need to put that off. You know, they would have to go back to the capital markets for enormous amount of money to to do that, so yeah, they're doing yeah. little incremental things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the downstream side, uh, when they run out of capacity, they can put more TV channels together, and uh, when they run into conflicts of too many people on the same thing, they can extend the fiber a bit further out, divide a set of cable TV stuff into two separate fibers. And so there's a bunch of things they can do, and they're doing them incrementally, and people bitch that they're not doing them fast enough because they're promising this and delivering yeah, this yeah. and so forth. Uh, but, you know, they're a practical – I mean, I as a monopolist, I don't like their pricing or any of their mm – -hmm. you know, the, their ability to, to abuse their position. Yeah. Uh, but as a technologist, they're doing – and as a business person, they're doing something that's entirely rational in terms of – you know, you're not going to go back to the capital well and raise money to deliver fiber to to 100 million residences. That's that's an insane amount of money. Yeah. You know, trillion dollars here, trillion there. I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievable, even for yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing is, it is even doing it wirelessly. It is a capital intensive business. Uh, we look at you know when I say we can go to a building with. 50 apartments or 100 apartments and bring in a ton of capacity, well, you know, we need uh, maybe 5000 to fifteen dollars or $20,000 of capital investment to get, to get the capacity to the building and yeah. get the wiring in the building and get set up so we can start signing up customers. So yeah. it makes sense if it's a 200-unit apartment building, especially if it's a brand new one where everybody isn't already locked into a Comcast contract. <laughs> Yeah. It for a 50 unit building you have to think about well what's it actually going to cost me and how many people am I going to flip in 6 months and how many are going to take 2 years. Yeah. You know, it's not hard to flip people from Comcast but a lot of people are on contracts and things a two year two year commitment and yeah. so and uh you know if I look at our business um we raised a bunch of seed money from family and friends, if you will, convertible notes, and and uh, we reached profitability some time ago. Um, we're throwing off, we're, we're close to throwing off enough cash to fund our capital investments to keep growing. That's the real, yeah. you know, profitability is okay, but if you if you need to invest capital to keep growing, and where does it come from? And the answer 
in the near future will be it comes from uh, all the money we're making, we're pouring back into expanding. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're, we're trivial compared to Comcast. We're, yeah. you know, we're 3,000 subscribers in Boston. Uh, we doubled last year and like to double this year, but yeah. that's still irrelevant compared to... Uh, <laughs> Your startup. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So... So uh, it sounds like City of Boston uh, is your focus right now. Any plans to to move beyond uh, Boston into other geographies? Uh, okay, Greater Boston is our. You know, we we have buildings in Cambridge and Somerville, as far out as Medford, um, Brookline. So you know, but absolutely, it's Greater Boston area. Things that we can reach wirelessly from one of our fiber feed points and. Uh, the fiber feed points are either in Boston or in Cambridge. Um, yes, we are. If I felt confident that we had all the technology, the monitoring systems, the training and policies and procedures in place to make this be smooth instead of instead of a day-by-day -day struggle, yeah. <laughs> scambling to, to keep up with new sales, um, then uh, the gutsy thing would be to say, ah, oh, Here's the model. It costs this many million. You can get to this whatever in th in two years, and you can get to this in in five years, and then go out raise money. And you know, there's all there. There's at least fifty cities that could do the same thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you look at Brooklyn or the Bronx or Queens by themselves, each one is at least as good as the Greater Boston area. Yeah. Just, yeah. And the other approach, which uh, is the more incremental thing, is you find a cluster of three or five buildings you can sign up in an area where there are 20 or 30 buildings that are candidates and you use that as a toehold mm -hmm. and one thing is gee we got some people in quincy who are interested what if we do move down you know you could go down the coast of connecticut along the new haven and hartford railway to new york city and there's just one thing after another yeah. <laughs> uh, which are more modest things that you could get into with less money um, yeah. So there's a there's a number of possible growth strategies. Uh, we're not the only people doing this. Uh, the one of the older companies that's that stumbled into this is a company called WebPass that sold out to Google a couple of years ago. Um, they've they're in San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Miami. They were in Boston, but it looks like. Uh, we were too much competition for them because Google has announced that they're not doing any more web pass in Boston is, is not signing up any more subscribers. And, um, but there are companies like that in, uh, in, a, you know, I'm aware of five or six such companies. Uh, so what we're doing is not unique and it is hopeful that at least apartment buildings and condos in urban areas can be connected in a fashion that's very competitive to anybody else. Um, over the next five or 10 years, I would expect a lot of that to happen. And once it becomes well-established, there'll be roll-ups. And so I expect that we'll, if we, if we lead the roll-up, we'll be rich. And if we get dragged into a roll-up, we'll at least do okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's the long-term thing. Uh, in the end, it ought to be fiber, but you know, wireless is a way to get there. Wireless is the only thing to, to work around the lack of access to the right-of-way. And, oh, and just talking about right-of-ways, 
that is the problem. It's where is the right of way and who can put stuff in the right of way. Uh, NetBlazer actually has a bunch of fiber in some places, uh, but it's uh, one example is in the Mission Park complex in uh, uh, Huntington Avenue in uh, uh, Jamaica Plain, South Roxbury, mm -hmm. on the Brookline border. Uh, that's 1,100 units of uh, subsidized mixed mixed use subsidized housing. Um, and it's multiple city blocks. Uh, we serve every unit there now, or almost, we're, we're almost, we're not quite done building out yet, but, and we do it with fiber to all the buildings until you have to cross a city street, and then we use wireless. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there's fiber on the other side, but we have to cross the city street with, with yeah. wireless yeah. because, you know, it's a, the, the overhead of getting anything in the city right of way is beyond belief. And yeah. so nobody even bothers and we haven't started to try and tackle that. So, Well, Prof, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. We appreciate your perspective. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward, if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett, that's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. -T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dnemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Brof, where can folks get in touch with you online? Uh, certainly Twitter, uh, B-R-O-U-G-H. <laughs> Gmail, B-R-O-U-G-H, T-U-R-N-E-R, at gmail.com. Um, I may or may not respond quickly. It totally depends on how swamped I am keeping up with NetBlazer. <laughs> Excellent. So that's it for episode 248 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>